Good evening. I've got a ball I can throw now. A table's being rowdy. <laughs> it's not a soft ball. This is this is a plastic hard ball. So be you know it'll. <clears throat> We're gonna go ahead and get started. Um. Solitude, the practice of solitude is one of those things that is different for every person. Um, some people find the practice of solitude to be deeply, deeply uh, helpful and encouraging and life restoring. Other people find the practice of solitude to not be so much. Um, I know that, and I, I can share this, I've talked to him about it, but uh, Evan, our, who... Uh, just went off to seminary, used to be in our youth department, he, str he struggled with uh, uh, solitude sometimes because he always said, I can't turn my brain off. I can't turn my brain off. Um, and I was like, well, a brain as smart as yours, I can understand why. Like, that could be difficult. Uh, but, you know, it's just different for different people. And that's one of the things about Inhabit that I'm, I'm hoping that you're, you're grasping is I, I just don't take a view of these spiritual practices that there's one size fits all. Um, if there was a formula then I would have given you a rule of life that was already filled out, right? I would have said, okay, here's the rule of life. Do these things on a daily, weekly, you know, monthly basis. Um, but I don't think that's how they work. I think that there are different practices that work better with certain people. And uh, what I think is even more uh, uh, often the times is that there's different practices that are helpful during different seasons of life, right? Um, and so the practice of solitude is one that is... Uh, probably one of the most, um, has, has differing reactions from people, right? Like it's just, there's very divergent reactions to the practice of solitude. But, but again, I think we must push ourselves um, because it isn't a practice that you can lightly put to the side and say, well, that's just not for me, end of discussion, right? Because throughout the history of uh, Christianity, the saints of the church have consistently found God in these practices, consistently found something that is not replaceable um, by other means in this practice of getting alone with God in prayer. Um, so I hope that you practice it this week. If not, you're not going to have much to talk about during small group. Uh, but let's begin uh, with prayer, and then we'll go into our small group discussion on our practice for this last two weeks. Let's pray. God, you are gracious in that you meet us in so many different ways. Um, you speak to us in ways that we can understand, in ways that make us feel safe and comfortable. And Lord, sometimes in the busyness of life, we fail to hear all the different ways that you're speaking to us. Solitude is such a great place to just... Get rid of the other voices and just focus on you. We were made for you, O oh Lord. Help us to learn through the process of inhabit, through the rule of life, better ways that we can structure our days, structure our hours, structure our time um, in, better, in, in being better at listening to you, of pursuing you. Lord, I uh, pray that your spirit would be amongst us. Help us uh, to share honestly and openly here in our small groups um, and also hear from you through one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. For real this time. No more false starts. 
Um, over the uh, course of Inhabit, we have been looking at the biblical narrative. We've been tracing the story of Scripture and uh, looking at it from this big picture perspective, um, which I always find helpful. Um, but there's one thing that we sort of talked about in the beginning, and then we, in order to get some of the other material, uh, uh, we moved past. Um, but it's a question that repeatedly comes up in Scripture, or at least when you're looking at it from this big picture. You know, when we look at our biblical narrative, we know that there's this triune God who existed for eternity, and he always has the same character. He never changes. It's just who uh, this God is. And God is holy and just and good, and, and out of his goodness and love, God creates to share that presence, share that goodness. He's brimming with life, and he wants to share that. So he creates the world. Um, and he dwells in it with the people, and then human beings rebel against God, and there's this just catas catastrophic break that happens. Um, in us, in how we treat one another, this, this thing we call the fall, sin entering the world, is, is such a big deal. Um, and there's this question that happens over and over and over again, is how is God going to fix this, Right? How is it going to, how is God going to maintain who he is and at the same time save these broken sinners? Uh, John Stott has these series of questions that uh, explain what he calls the divine dilemma. He says this, how can God express his holiness, which he is, right, and has eternally been holy, without consuming us in our sin? How can God maintain and be holy without devouring things that aren't holy, right? How is that going to happen? How can God express his love without condoning us in our sin? How can God judge sin and justify the sinner at the same time? How can God satisfy himself and save us? This is the big biblical question. God covenants immediately after the fall that he's going to do something about this. He's going to save people. But as the story of scripture goes on, the question of how it's going to happen just gets bigger, right? How is this going to happen? How can God be just and pardon sinners? Proverbs 17.15 says this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Isn't that what God is doing in salvation? How is it different? Romans 4, 5 says this expressly. It says this, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. So is, is God an abomination to himself because he justifies those who are broken, those who are wicked? The question of the biblical story is how is this God going to, what's going to happen? Something has to give, right? How is God going to maintain who he is and bridge what seems like an unbridgeable gap? 
between himself and this broken world filled with sin that is everything opposed to who he is? And the answer to that question, we all know, is the cross, right? But how does the cross answer that question? How does the cross answer that question? How does the cross make it to where God is not a wicked judge, right, who is just giving people free passes and justice doesn't matter anymore? How is it that at the cross God doesn't compromise his holiness, his justice? How is it at the cross that we are freed from our sin? Let me ask you a question. We talk about the cross a lot. Every year we have big uh, season that leads us to the cross and then to the resurrection. Um, it's in the, it's, it's, the cross is central to most of our hymns, right? More so than any other aspect of Jesus' work. What happened on the cross? Let me expand that. What happened on the cross that specifically addresses this divine dilemma? I mean, we know in theory what happened on the cross. Jesus hung there right, until he died, and we have narratives that tell us about how soldiers speared him in the side, and water and blood came out. We know about the story of when the the other criminals went up there, but what happened on on the cross specifically that would have bridged this gap? Yes, absolutely, substitution. We, we so often talk about the cross in such a way that we get these, oftentimes we, we get m- almost a misguided understanding of what's happening on there when, in, in some of our songs and some of the ways we talk about it, um, because oftentimes it's seen as just a negation of the problem, right? The, the cross just took the problem away, and we don't need to think too deeply about the dilemma that it causes, Right? That's oftentimes our approach to the cross. But the answer to the question, I'll give it to you now and then we'll explain it, is what happened on the cross is satisfaction through substitution. Right? Satisfaction through substitution. And I, the best way I know to talk about what happened on the cross is by looking at four terms, four words that the scripture uses. I gave you a handout that has all four of them. It might seem familiar to some of you. If you have a really good memory, some of you will remember years and years ago being in this very room uh, talking about the cross for six hours on a Friday night. Um, this is the same sort of general lecture. Uh, for those of you who have been through confirmation in recent years since I've been teaching it, you'll know uh, this idea. Um, and so for some of you, it will be somewhat of a repeat. Um, but in case you're thinking, well, then I just don't need to pay attention, I'll tell you this. I've taught this lecture, oh, I don't know, 60, 70 different times. Um, and I still uh, think it's, I, number one, I still think it's the best way to teach it. I didn't come up with it, so I'm not like patting myself on the back, right? Uh, this is a mixture of John Stott, who is a great uh, uh, theologian, um, and a, a New Testament professor of mine whenever I was in college. But um, I, I, I t- I've taught this so many times over the last, I don't know, 10 years, 8 years that I, since I developed it. And I still find it to be a mo- a helpful reminder, right? Uh, a, a, a needed 
perspective on the cross that somehow, especially when I've taken long times in between teaching it, I seem to forget some of the clarity that scripture actually brings to what happens on the cross. Um, so we're going to look at these four words that you have in front of you, and we're going to use those to help us understand what's happening on the cross. That's where we are in our biblical narrative, and that's what we're going to do. The, and, and we have this sort of structure of moving through them. Uh, propitiation is our first word. Propitiation. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now, if you were to look in your Bible and you have a translation like maybe the NRSV, you would not see the word propitiation there. You would see the word expiation. That's wrong. If you have a Bible, that's great. You can use that translation. Just scratch out whenever you see expiation and put propitiation in there. It's a, it's a terrible translation of a biblical word that has a meaning that we cannot change. Propitiation, which we're going to see, we're going to define, is this idea of uh, wrath being poured out on a substitute. Very a well-known idea in the ancient world, which we'll get to. Expiation just means to wipe clean. It takes out the element of punishment being poured out, and therefore is a bad translation of, a, of this word. Okay, so one of the things about all four of these words we're going to look at that come from Scripture is the New Testament authors did not make these words up. They, they used them. These were words that were known and used in different areas of life, and they brought them to help us understand what happens on the cross, right? So we have to look at the metaphor, the background. What context does this word come from? The word propitiation comes from the cult, what we would say the cultic context, um, or the sacrificial context. Nearly every known religion of the ancient Near East practiced propitiation, Right? We know of it from the Jewish system, right? the Old Testament, this idea of sacrifices, animal sacrifices that would, uh, that would appease the wrath of the gods. Right? But you may also know of it if you've read much Greek literature um, throughout your schooling. This was a very uh, uh, well-known practice that they would have. In fact, there are many accounts of a time when a city was sieged or a war was not going well, and the king thought to himself, okay, the gods must be angry at me, so we must sacrifice in order to propitiate, appease, satisfy their anger, so then they can be pleased with us and things will go well, right? We, are we all familiar with this idea, this sacrificial idea of there being something that we put forward that takes the wrath of God up, uh, uh, in our place, right? That substitute idea. This is what the word propitiation comes from, and it was a well-known idea. I mean, no one in the ancient Near East would have, would have had no context. Would have, no one would have been confused by this idea. It was, it was uh, uh, practiced everywhere in every part of the ancient Near East, from Egypt up to Rome. Everyone partook of this. And it was an established understanding that this is how it had to work. Right? We now live in a society that assumes, or, well, I don't know if I can say that completely, but the idea of God being angry about something, particularly something that human beings have done that, that offends the God, 
is that idea in and of itself is um, see, seen as sort of backwater, as old school, right? But in the ancient world, that was a, that was a base assumption. A base assumption is gods have things they want done and things they don't want done. Now, all the different religions had different ways of talking about it, but there was a base idea that you could offend the gods. And when you offended the gods, something had to be done or else their anger, their wrath would come down on you. So if you look at the second one, the metaphor is cultic. The problem is God's wrath, right? The problem is God's wrath. God, God's wrath is real. It is a part of his character. Wrath is the idea of anger toward, or, or, or it, it, wrath is an extreme sort of anger, um, a, a hatred of, we don't like the word hatred nowadays, um, but a hatred of certain things that are ultimately by the God, by God uh, declared not good. Ezekiel 7 says this, now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations and my eye will not spare nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes you. That's, that's intense, huh? Uh, these passages of scripture that we have throughout our Bible, what we call our holy scriptures, are very clear about the reality of God's wrath, um, that it is real, that it is personal, that it is sovereign. Um, but so often we like to not think about that because it makes us uncomfortable, right? Uh, why does it make us uncomfortable? Partly because I think there's something in us that knows that we are guilty, that we are not innocent, um, and part of us is because we live in a time now where this is just not seen as being uh, overly accepted. But God's wrath is real. And so the problem that we face, the first problem that we face in this divine dilemma that the cross solves is God's wrath. Not just God's wrath as a general concept, but the fact that according to the biblical story, God's wrath is on us. Because we are sinful. We have broken his laws. We have um, uh, turned away. We have done things to cause God's wrath. And it is on each and every individual. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The biblical narrative paints a picture of one of the problems of our situation is that we are fundamentally opposed to God in a real way. God's wrath is on us because we are unrighteous. We have practiced ungodliness. We are broken, like we say, down to a cellular level. And this is a problem. One of the unique differences between the Jewish expression of, of the sacrificial system and every other known uh, use of the sacrificial system where propitiation is a common idea is in every other system you, somewhat, you sort of had to guess if the God was mad at you and why. 
right? There was, there was no clear way of knowing. It was just according to how your fortunes were that you found this out. And so the start, the beginning point of solving the problem lies on the people. And they say, oh, things aren't going well. The gods must be angry. So we must take the initiative to appease God's wrath. Right? To offer up something for a propitiation. This is a unique difference because from the beginning, if we, if we know our biblical narrative, God is the one who initiates a relationship with Israel, gives them the law, and what does the law contain? A system for propitiation. Right? He initiates it and gives it to them. And so... Ultimately, on the cross, God brings us, he brings the final piece of initializing this work of salvation. The solution for propitiation is substitution. Something has to come between God's wrath and us. Something has to take that on, like in an animal sacrifice would, that will ultimately leave us not bearing that wrath. The problem is, who can that be? It would be unjust of God to just pick one person and say, Jimmy, sorry, but it's on you, right? It would be unjust of God to just to pick a random person or even a really good person, someone who really strove, whatever, to just say, you know what, you're going to take it. Or to come to humans and say, anyone volunteer, who wants to take on the wrath of all human beings on themselves, right? Anyone? Any takers? Anyone? That would be unjust. It is unjust to punish someone for someone else's crimes. So how can God put a substitution in that place? Well, he does it by taking it on his own self. He doesn't punish someone else. He bears the wrath of his character on his own self. I don't have my page numbers. I'm getting confused on my notes. Where am I? Okay, there we go. And this is what God does. God takes on the wrath. He puts himself in this place, bearing the weight of his own wrath. This Jesus knew was coming. When we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, right? I, I, I preached on this last year, but uh, in case you don't have a perfect memory, uh, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane looking forward to the cross and he's in anguish, right? He says, uh, he, he, he goes a little, Matthew 26 says, he goes a little further and he fell on his face and prayed saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Oftentimes we think that Jesus is in the, in the garden anguishing over the physical pain that's going to happen on the cross. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, this, let this cross pass from me. He doesn't say, let this pain pass from me. He says, this cup, right? And throughout the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath was a metaphor that was commonly used. Jeremiah 25, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand this cup of the, wrath, of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of, uh, of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. This idea of the cup of the wrath, God's wrath being poured out on you. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane knew 
that he was going to bear the wrath of God on sin for all peoples. And so he is dreading that idea. So what happens on the cross? On the cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that was rightly on us, takes it on himself so that we can be spared. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, listen. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. God had passed over in the sense of not poured out his wrath, not given justice for the sins that had happened in prior times. But he, didn't, he wasn't going to leave them unpunished, right? That would compromise his holiness. No, he passed over them because in his divine forbearance, he knew that at, the, when, at, at such a time as this, right, when at, at the appointed time, he was going to take the wrath for all of that sin on himself. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. He made the final sacrifice, the final propitiation to satisfy God's wrath that would be required. He took God's wrath on himself, fulfilling the sacrificial system and bringing God's love, or bringing uh, uh, God's wrath to satisfaction in his own self. I love this in 1 John 4, 9, because this seems backwards in our heads nowadays. He says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Oftentimes, the idea of wrath and love are seen as um, opposed to each other, right? As contradictions. If you really loved someone, you wouldn't have wrath toward them, right? These simplistic uh, dualisms that we, we create. But John says, no, 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 no. There is not a contrast between wrath and love, right? No, in God's wrath being poured out on a substitute, we see God's love. The opposite, the antithesis of love is not wrath. It is ambivalence, right? It is not caring enough to do anything. Um, but in the cross, we see the love of God. Here's another quote from John Stott um, that emphasizes this. He says this, It cannot be emphasized too strongly. That God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. Let us be clear. God did not change from wrath to love or from enmity to grace since his character is unchanging. 
What the propitiation changed was his dealings with us. God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us on the cross. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. On the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath, his own wrath against sin for us. It was poured out on him. He drank the cup until it was empty so that you and I didn't have to. He satisfied God's holiness and justice by bearing the, pun- the just and due punishment for sins on himself. And the result is the satisfaction of God's wrath or what theologians call the pacification of God's wrath. The result is that God's wrath is satisfied and it is no longer directed on us, right? When we are counted as in Christ. Got it? Okay, the next word is redemption. Redemption. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is a term. We started at the temple, right? I always like to think about this as we're in an ancient city, but that's just because I'm weird. Uh, so we started at the temple, and the, the first term we used was a cultic word, a word that was understood, this a propitiation. We've moved now down from the temple to the marketplace. The term redemption was a commercial term used in trading. Most of the time in this context, used in uh, the... Uh, industry of slavery, but it was also used in land in Israel, Uh, but that's really confusing, so it's easier to go with the uh, slavery uh, analogy. So in the ancient world, um, let's say Jimmy, let's use Jimmy again. Uh, Let's say I, uh, I go off for a weekend and I come back and I'm like, Linda, where's Jimmy? And they're like, ah, he got himself in debt, and so to get out of his debt, he sold himself into slavery, right, to Bill. Bill, even though they're church members, brothers, Bill thought, you know, hey, I'm not going to forgive this debt. I'm taking, you're going to have to work this off. So I would then have the opportunity to go to Bill and say, Bill, this isn't right. Let me redeem Jimmy from you by paying off his debt and you set him free, right? This was the term of redemption was understood, right? Same thing would happen if you... uh, lost a land from a family, another person had the legal opportunity a certain amount of time if, you, if someone sold a piece of land that was owned by a family for a long time. There was a certain amount of time where people could go back and redeem that land and the people who purchased it had to redeem it to them. Very uh, common practice. So what is the problem? We are enslaved to sin. The problem is that we don't just sin. Oh, that's a terrible S. We don't just sin, but we are enslaved to sin, right? We are hooked to it. We cannot stop ourselves. We are powerless to change the situation. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
We don't just sin, but we are enslaved to it, right? We talked about this as having, we, ever since the fall, we have these disordered loves, right? These disordered uh, hearts that we, we, and we're powerless to properly orient them in the right way. So we are enslaved to our passions, right? And so the solution for this state, this problem, is that the price is paid. In order to redeem us from our slavery, a price is paid, and the price is paid by Jesus himself. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without spot or blemish. Jesus comes and pours out his blood to redeem, to, to redeem us, to pay off the price of our debt. Now, this doctrine, this word used by Paul, has gotten confused by some over the course of church history. It is an analogy. It is a metaphor. Jesus did not actually have to pay anyone money in order to get us out of slavery, right? Um, there have been people who've gotten confused, and I've had people after I've given this, this talk where I didn't pause and do this say, so did, was Jesus paying the devil? Like, was this an exchange that they had, like, you know, they had negotiated a certain price and it was Jesus' blood? No, that's not. It's a metaphor to get us to understand what's happening on the cross, um, that Jesus came to set us free through his sacrifice by breaking sin, uh, our, our enslavement to sin. And this happens on the cross through Jesus' death because Jesus offers himself, dies, and then really through the resurrection, but we sort of talk about it here because it's easier, okay? Because it's always applied to the cross here. Does that make sense? It's in the resurrection that Jesus opens up a newness of life that breaks our uh, in slavery to sin. So what is the result? Is freedom, Galatians 4, 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Is we have the spirit that comes and takes us out of our state of slavery and brings us into uh, freedom. But what does freedom mean? Right? I think that we can get confused if we take a modern definition of freedom. Oftentimes, especially uh, in our earlier years, confirmation students, uh, freedom is seen as the... Uh, abolishing of constraints, right? Freedom is breaking down any barrier, anything that would tell us what we can and can't do, right? Um, but that's not a good definition of freedom uh, because that doesn't solve our problem. Uh, it, it, not having constraints doesn't solve our enslavement internally, right? Um, Augustine had a real problem with freedom, St. Augustine. St. Augustine sought to get rid of all the constraints. Like at one point in his life, he runs away, like literally in the middle of the night. He leaves his parents because they put too much constraints on him, and he goes to Milan. Um, and he's, he's looking to, for a place where all these constraints would be blocked away, where he'd have enough power to be free, and no one could tell him what he could and couldn't do. And he got there. He was very successful. 
But when he got there, what he realized was, even though he had power, nobody could make him do anything. He didn't have the power to stop himself from doing things that were harming him, right? There was this question that bothered, uh, uh, that bothered Augustine, and it was, why would anyone willingly live an unhappy happy life? No one would willingly make decisions that they knew would make them unhappy. Yet he looked around and he looked at himself and he said, I'm making these decisions and then I wake up in the morning and I'm not happy with who I am and where I am. And then 20 minutes later, I'm making those same decisions again. How is this freedom? How is this freedom? And it's not. And what Augustine came to realize is that his definition of freedom was wrong. Freedom is not the the, the elimination of constraints, freedom is the power to do what's best, right? Freedom is the ability, the power to do things that are aimed toward the good. And in, 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 in Augustine's term, the ultimate good, right? He says this, the human will does not attain grace through its freedom, but rather it attains freedom through grace. Because such freedom does not expand with the demolishing of boundaries. Rather, it flourishes when a goodwill is channeled toward the good by the constraints of the gift of grace. He saw that what he really needed was not something to take away rules and constraints. What he really needed was the power to choose the best constraints, right? It's not about getting rid of constraints and rules. That doesn't lead to freedom. What happens is we choose constraints that harm us rather than choosing constraints that are good for us, right? We still have constraints. Jesus did not come so that you could live however you want, and he's just cool with it. That's not at all what, what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that the real freedom comes from abiding in his word, in his, if you were to use Augustine's analogy, constraints. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are set free by abiding in Jesus' truth, living the way that Jesus teaches us to live. So on the cross, Jesus frees us from our enslavery to sin and enables us to abide in him where we can experience... Oh, that just says Chris. I need the T on it. Uh, enables us to abide in him where we can find true freedom. This is so important because if Jesus only came to substitute himself for God's wrath, then after Jesus leaves, we're still in the same situation we were in before he came, with the exception of we are no longer under God's wrath, right? For a, maybe a singular moment? I don't know, how long would that last if Jesus didn't free us from our brokenness? Yes, Jesus came to abolish sin, but there's more steps that are needed than to deal with God's wrath. More things are, are, are need, needed to happen in order for us to have a holistic salvation. So I don't like when, when and American spirituality has so often just focused on the cross being a way of abolishing, of, of, of pacifying God's wrath. But that's, a, that's a, 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 a very small understanding of what the cross does. The cross did not just come to redeem our souls for heaven one day. 
It came to redeem all of us, right? To take us out of our current enslavement and enable us through the power of grace, through the power of the Spirit, to choose to live a better way, to be able to abide in Jesus. This happens through the cross, through Jesus' pouring out of himself for us. The third word is justification. So we went to the temple first, right? And we talked about propitiation, this cultic idea, substituting God for God's wrath onto another. Then we went to the marketplace, right? Talked about uh, uh, redemption, which is a commercial idea. And then justification is a legal term, right? Justification is a legal term from the courtrooms. The problem is that we are guilty. Romans 3 what, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Everyone is guilty. So how is it that the cross can answer this problem. Because let's say that we stop here. Let's say we stop here, okay? God's wrath has been dealt with, right? Because Jesus substituted himself in our place. We are no longer enslaved to sin and have the ability through the power of grace, through the power of the Spirit to choose good. But what is going to satisfy God's demand for perfection? We're not going to be able to go back in time and start over and do this, are we? Right? And we know from the biblical narrative that we're still going to mess up while we have the power to choose what's good. We're not perfect at it. How is it that we can not just appease God's wrath, but satisfy God's demands, his perfect holiness, right? Well, the, the answer is through what's called the great exchange, the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his sinlessness for our sinfulness. He took our sin on himself, offering us his perfection. Without this, right, God's wrath has been dealt with, but we still cannot be in perfect relationship with God. Without being counted in Christ's righteousness, we are still unworthy to stand in the presence of a God who's perfectly holy, perfectly good. So the solution is the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus offered himself, took on our sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus took on our sin on the cross, offered up his righteousness, and this is what's called this fancy term, the impartation of Christ's righteousness, right? If you ever want to impress someone, I mean, someone like me, like not just, and most people aren't going to be impressed by that. But um, Jesus takes our sin on himself. He becomes sin, sin who knew no sin. He became sin who knew no sin. Yeah. Uh, 
and offers up his righteousness, he imparts that onto us. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us a wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He became our righteousness. He imparted his righteousness onto us. Philippians 3.9 uh, it says, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness uh, from God that depends on faith. Jesus offers himself for us. Uh, he takes on our sin, offers us his righteousness, and the result is that we are declared righteous, right? In Christ. We are declared righteous in Christ. Therefore, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Je Jesus makes it to where we are justified, right? Declared righteous. That's that legal idea. Declared righteous despite our guilt because we are counted in Christ's righteousness. Here's a, I, I really like catechisms. And one of my favorite ones, if you've never read it and you want to peruse a catechism on a Saturday morning sometime, my, one of my, my, my absolute favorite one is the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, it's from the 1500s, 16th century. Um, and it asks a question like all catechisms. It says this, how are you righteous before God? That's the question. Simple, right? Uh, this was written by a bunch of Presbyterians and Reformed people. Uh, so the answer is not simple, but it is beautiful. Okay? It says this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and not kept any of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me all the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and his holiness, as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sin sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ carried out for me. If only I accept this, through, uh, this grace through faith. It's beautiful, right? This idea of we are counted in Christ, all of his works become our works, so much so that it's as if we never sinned before God. Justification is the pronouncement of we are in Christ, counted in his righteousness, which enables and allows the fourth word to be possible. Reconciliation. So we were at the temple, right? Talking about the cultic, the sacrificial. Then we went to the uh, marketplace, looked at redemption. Then we went to the courthouse, justification, and then it was time for us to go home. Right? Reconciliation is a relational word. It is when a relationship has been broken, it being brought back together. Right? Um, reconciliation is something we can all understand. Right? You're mad at someone, they do something, or maybe a third party does something, brings the two back together. So what's the problem? The problem is a broken relationship. We've, we've covered this. Right? God's wrath, God's character, we are opposed to that because of our sin. So the problem is a broken relationship. The solution is someone to mend the relationship. This one is, is hard to understand. But one of the things that we don't 
talk about enough, I don't think, is how on the cross, when Jesus bore our sin, what happened when we sinned? Right? The relationship was broken between us and God. And then there's this huge separation that happens, right? Our sin separates us from God because he's holy, he's just, he's good, right? He's perfect and he's going to maintain that. So what happens when Jesus takes our sin on him, that he bears our separation from God. How that works in the reality of the Trinity and all that kind of stuff, I don't know. Frankly, I don't care. Jesus says this on the, uh, uh, from the cross. It says this, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. So Jesus is on the cross, and it gets very dark, even though it's not time for it to be dark, right? And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes Psalm 22, this psalm of abandonment, this psalm of separation. It's a lament psalm uh, uh, written in a time when the, the psalmist did not feel the presence of God, was feeling a distance here. Jesus on the cross bears a separation from God. An alienation from the Father that comes from sin. He bears that on himself in order to redeem or to reconcile our relationship with God so that we can have access, so that we can be adopted by God. Colossians 1.19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross this results in a new relationship a relationship in which we are adopted into the family of God and have access to God through the spirit Ephesians 2 17 and he came that's Jesus he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus on the cross bore an alienation that is natural for us, right? Because we are sinful, broken peoples, but is unbelievably unnatural for part of the Trinity to experience, right? He bears that alienation that comes with sin because if he hadn't borne that alienation, then he hadn't truly had sin been put on him, Right? And then he doesn't truly solve the problem that we're trying to address here. In order for us to be able to have that relationship with God, have, be in God's presence, be truly saved, we must have this relationship mended. We must be able to access the Father, to be in his presence. And Jesus does this for us on the cross. He does it by satisfying God's wrath by being a propitiation for us. He does it by redeeming our slavery to sin by offering his blood. He does it by justifying us in spite of our guilt through his righteousness. And he does it by bearing the separation we rightly deserve because of our sin so that we might be, we might, uh, be brought back into relationship. We might be adopted and have access. This is what happens on the cross for our salvation. This is how Jesus solves the dilemma John Stott follows up his list of questions that we read at the beginning um, by this. He says this, At the cross, 
God expresses his judgment on sin. At the cross, God endures his judgment against sin. At the cross, God enables salvation for sinners. At the cross, God is in all and glorified above all through Jesus. It is God who initiates our salvation, God who accomplishes it. It is God who bears the punishment, his own punishment for sin, and it is God who redeems and reconciles us to him. We take this for granted because we talk about it so much and the cross is so well known, but I hope that sometimes you look at this and you have those moments of what John Stott said, the profundity that leads to worship. When, you, when I look at the biblical narrative, and when I look at what it took for God to accomplish our salvation, I sometimes just think, wow. God's love is so much deeper than I, 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 than I, I can imagine. God could have easily just said, you know what, they're done, right? He didn't have to do this, but he chose to, and sometimes I think we misunderstand it. Sometimes we think we, we use the cross to say, oh, look, it's because I'm worth so much, right? And that's true. God, God does think you are worth so much in his presence. He, he clearly loves you so much, but the point of the cross is not how much you are worth, right? I can't stand that song uh, that people used to sing, the trampled by the road, like, uh, well, how does it go? Uh, he thought of me above all. What's the line before that? Like yes. Yes, like a rose trampled on the ground, talking about Jesus at the cross. He thought of me above all. No, that's self-glorification at the cross. The Bible teaches that we have worth, right? We've talked about that. We are created in the image of God. That gives us worth, right? The cross, we don't learn how much we're worth. At the cross, we learn how much we are loved. How much there is a being out there that needs nothing and yet chooses to love us so much that he bears his own judgment, bears the weight of our sins on himself, offers up his righteousness because he's chosen to love you that much. Hey, come on. Do we need to separate y'all? Matthew, you want to come sit up here? No? Okay. This is something that should evoke our worship. This is something that should move us, right, to live in certain ways. Because God has chosen to do this for us. He poured out his own life, bore the wrath. I, can't, I don't even know what that, you know, Theologians have speculated on what does that mean? And we can, it's natural, we get used to this idea, right? It becomes repetitive, we hear it so much. But let's, let's just stop for a moment and, and look at it, right? We're so used to it that it becomes familiar, which it becomes mundane. But the cross, should, the story of the cross should never become mundane to us. This is why I think and I'm, we're going to go to small group in just a second, but this is why I think we should take Lent more seriously. Lent is the journeying, looking at Jesus' life, moving to the cross and the resurrection. It's a time set apart 
for us to focus on this again. And the church fathers, I believe, knew that we would need it every single year because every year we would, come, we would become so accustomed, so familiar with this idea that we would forget how amazing it is. How amazing it is that our God became human, walked amongst us, offered himself willingly on a cross, took his own punishment for us so that we could be in a relationship because he loved us so much that he wanted to be in a relationship with us. He wanted to redeem us. We need to take Lent seriously because it's a time for us to set aside and set Say, I need to look at this so I can once again come to the place where we are amazed. I want to read a quote, and I think this is what the Linton journey is supposed to bring us to. Where am I? Here we go. I love this quote so much. It's from Charles Spurgeon, talking about Jesus. It says this. He stripped off first one robe of honor, then another. Until naked, he was fastened to the cross. There he emptied his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving himself for all of us. Finally, they laid him in a borrowed grave. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the scarlet drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorny crown and his scourged shoulders still gushing with the crimson flow of blood. See his hands and feet given up to the rough iron, and his whole self mocked and scorned. See the bitterness, the pangs, and the throes of inward grief, themselves in his outward frame. Hear the trilling shriek, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. And Jesus stooped for you, I, I was sorry, as Jesus stooped for you, bow in humility at his feet. A realization of Christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. Pride cannot live beneath the feet of the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson. Then let us rise and carry it in practice. I think Lent is designed as a season for us to sit there at the foot of the cross. Sit there and look at the amazing love of our God. Have our pride be eliminated, not by an, a consciousness of our own guilt, but by looking at how amazing God's love is. And it's only then, after sitting with it, and learning our lesson that we can rise and carry it into practice, carry that humility. This is what we see at the cross. This is what God has done for us. This is what it took to accomplish our salvation. Let me pray and then we'll go into the time of small group and you guys can discuss this in more detail. God, you... Your love is unimaginable. You have chosen to love us. You've chosen to pursue us so much so that you offered your own self as a propitiation for our sins. You poured out your own blood 
to redeem us from our slavery. You offered your own righteousness and took on our sin to justify us. And you bore our separation so that we might come to you in prayer, that we might be in your presence, be adopted into your family. These things can become so familiar to us. Lord, I pray that tonight, as we think about this, as we talk about it, that we would see the amazing profundity and that we would be moved to worship. I pray that during the season of Lent, we would sit beneath the cross, think deeply about what it is you've done for us, and be moved to worship and humility and to rising and carrying your life into practice. Right now, Spirit, I pray that you would help us to think clearly about what you accomplished for us on the cross. Talk about it and discuss openly about what struggles we have, what we don't quite understand, um, and what moves us most about what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me um, interrupt real quick. You can always... If you have more to say, you can continue, uh, but I want to make sure that I get us out on time. Uh, as you notice when you walk in, many of you, to a deep sigh of relief, there's no readings. Um, two reasons for this. Number one, and I want to remind you, we are meeting again next week. Um, the spring semester, is, we, we needed to switch weeks at some point just because of the way things fall in the spring semester, and so it, we're doing it now, right? So we're going to meet next week, and then we'll take two weeks uh, before the next meeting. Um, and so uh, that didn't give you much time to read. The other reason is the practice that I have for us to think about this week in preparation for next week, I don't like any of the current published works on the topic. Uh, <laughs> the topic is fasting, fasting. Um, oh, yeah. D oh, wow. <laughs> fasting. And let me just, in light of that ground, let me read something that Jesus once said. When you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, right? Jesus assumed that his followers would fast. Yes. Um, and so I want to I just quickly, before we go, I want to give you an overview of what fasting is and then to, uh, give you, like, fasting in Scripture has several different purposes. There are several types of fasts. Sometimes it's to show urgency in prayer. When there was a deep prayer need, people would start fasting um, and not eating. Sometimes it was uh, to seek God's guidance, to express repentance, to humble oneself before God, to express uh, love and worship, and just to be intimate with God, right? To set aside time to get rid of everything else and just be with God. Um, fasting without some sort of spiritual God-centered purpose is not fasting. It is a weird diet or a purposeless hunger strike, right? One of those two, but it's not fasting. Um, John Wesley has a great quote. He says, first, let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eyes singly focused on him. Let our intention herein be this and this alone to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Fasting and prayer go hand in hand. Um, they're always connected. Anytime there's a fast, there's a push toward prayer. So what is fast? What is a fast? Biblically, fasting only relates to abstaining from food. We now have like fasting from social media, fasting from chocolate. That's, it only has to do with food, right? But there are different types of fasts within scripture. The regular fast is, and this is why I don't like the current literature, 
Because the current literature out there says that fasting is going 24 hours without food. That is not the regular fast that the ancient Near Eastern peoples that wrote the scriptures did. A typical normal fast is fasting from sunup to sundown. You know how Muslims do it? Fast during Ramadan? Where do you think the, uh, the Muslim faith got it in five, six hundreds, right? They looked at the Jewish people and they looked at Christians. Uh, and they said, oh, this is how they fast. For the majority of history, that's how people have fasted. It's sun up, sun down. Now, there are uh, examples in Scripture where people do absolute fasts. Jesus in the wilderness. Moses did an absolute fast where you eat nothing. But the typical fast is sun up to sundown. Another kind of fast in Scripture is a partial fast. In the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends do a partial fast. They abstain from meat and any sort of delicacy, right? So that's a fast that they did um, in a different way. So regular fasts are not eating from sunup to sundown. What's interesting when we look at fasting is in Scripture, it is, it is uh, only really a, a tied to um, urgency and prayer, repentance, intimacy with God. What we find in church history is almost immediately this other very strong connection being made with fasting, okay? Very early in church history, fasting is seen as a way of pursuing the virtue of self-control. It is connected to growth in the virtue of self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a, uh, uh, wait, that's the wrong one. Well, that's the wrong verse. Anyway, uh, first, no, yeah, 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 no, I'm looking at the wrong, I have something else printed here. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, so self-control is a virtue, and immediately Christians started pursuing the virtue of self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, something that we are called to have, right, through fasting. Um, and particularly, the Lenten fast has been seen as a way of introspection, but a way of practicing, communally practicing self-control. Okay, the Lenten fast has always been, or has historically been viewed as preparing ourselves for the cross and the resurrection, right? And chiefly enabling us to resist our passions, resist our desires and urges, those that draw us toward food, but also those that draw us toward sin. Because Easter's coming when we are called to this newness of life. And how do we partake in this newness of life? Well, it has, it, a, a, a key aspect is our ability to control ourselves. Um, so the Lenten fast has very various forms. Here's your assignment. That's what fasting is very quickly. The details of it all don't matter. Here's your assignment. How are you going to fast this Lenten season? Not are you going to fast. How are you going to fast this Lenten season? Couple things. Number one, if you've never fasted before, don't go crazy, right? If you have any health problems, don't go. Don't put yourself at any risk. God's not asking you to do that. But I do think there is something to us all together joining for this fast, focusing on Jesus. So here's what I want you to decide: How are you going to fast during Lent? Are you going to do a partial fast? 
like Daniel and his friends do, um, removing meat and delicacies. That's how the Orthodox Church does it during Lent. The Orthodox Church uh, as a whole removes meat, uh, any animal product really from their diet for the four days of Lent with the exception of some feast days and uh, things like that. Um, so are you going to do that? Are you going to maybe try practicing a regular fast once a week during Lent? So from sun up to sundown, you don't eat and you dedicate intentional time for a spiritual practice of pursuing God's presence. Um, whatever you're going to do, I want us all to think about this, to make a plan, because Lent starts Wednesday. So, if you're available, that's another reason I didn't give reading, because I've got another assignment for you. If you're available, come on Wednesday. Either come in the morning from 7 to 9.30 in the chapel, get ashes put on you as a sign of this beginning of this season, of your starting your journey with Jesus toward the tomb, the empty tomb, um, or... Uh, uh, comes at that night, 7 o'clock, for our worship service, okay? So, how are you going to fast? Next week, look at people around your table. Tell them, next week I'm going to ask you how you're fasting. Not if you're fasting, how. All right, thank you. We'll see you all next Sunday.